is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, which we do every day on this show. Every kind of history segment, by the way, from the arts to the sports world to military history to business history, which is a very important part of our nation's development. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the beautiful things in life, all the things that matter in life, the arts, history, politics, the Constitution, Plato, Aristotle, Shakespeare. It's all there. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And on this day in history, a man launched a company that we all know and most of us use pretty regularly. And, well, it's just one of those American stories that's just worth telling. Let's take a listen. He created the world on time, a modern wonder where everything from the latest gadgets to the most critical documents, what you want and what you really need, can be delivered overnight. His team works this fast. Okay, you just travel plans. I need to be in New York on Monday, LA on Tuesday, New York on Wednesday, LA on Thursday, New York on Friday. Got it? Got it. Got it. So you want to work here? What really makes you think you deserve a job here? Well, sir, I think on my feet I'm going to Peter's and have a sharp mind. Excellent. Can you start on Monday? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Without hesitation. Congratulations. Welcome aboard. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And in conclusion, Jim, Bill, Bob, call Fred, Low, Dork, Ava, Ted. Business is business. And as we all know, in order to get something done, you got to do something. In order to do something, we got to get to work. So let's get to work. Thank you for taking me. Pete, you did a bang up job. I'm putting you in charge of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. I know it's perfect, Peter. That's why I picked Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's perfect. Peter, may I call you Pete? Call me Pete. Pete. Is Mr. Schnittler here to see you? Home to wait 15 seconds. Can you wait 15 seconds? I'll wait 15 seconds. Congratulations on your deal in Denver, Dave. I'm putting you down to deal with Dallas. Don, is it a deal? Do we have a deal? It's a deal. I got to go. I got a call coming in. Hi, Doc. Just tell with Don. In this fast moving, high pressure, get it done yesterday world, aren't you glad there's one company that can keep up with it all? Deal. Good. I'm putting you down to deal with Dick. Dick, what's the deal with the deal? Are we dealing? We're dealing. Dave, it's a deal with Don, Dork, Dick. Dork, it's a deal with Dave, Dick, and Dave. Don, it's a Dork with Dick, Dave, and Dick. Gotta go, Dave. Disconnecting. Gotta go, Dick. Disconnecting. Gotta go, Dad. Disconnecting. Federal Express. When it absolutely, positively has to be there overnight. And all of this started with a college term paper. Its author was studying economics at Yale in 1965. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before? Anyone? Anyone? Having a grand old time as a fraternity member. I don't think you can fully judge a fraternity without looking at the positive qualities of the people in it. Getting gentlemanly C's. But this paper, this one, stood out. In it, a young undergrad pondered what would have to change in society, in logistics, as our world became more and more automated more computerized. After all, computers break down, and always keeping a spare for every part would be impractical. So we needed a customized transportation system, one that could move valuable things cross-country, in the time it usually takes to move something cross-state. From that insight sprung one of the biggest companies in the world, today employing over 300,000 people. 
300,000. A team that powers businesses of all sizes and the occasional giant panda adventure. We uh, needed to find a partner that could uh, transport the, the giant pandas from China to Canada. We also needed a partner that could ship the bamboo, which would be coming from the Memphis region. There's not many partners out there that can do all of that. We're very pleased that FedEx uh, stepped up. FedEx did more than just step up. They emblazoned a giant panda onto an airplane and called it the Panda Express when something absolutely positively has to get there you call FedEx but this idea may never have gotten off the ground but for a family of entrepreneurs but for a little old war called Vietnam and but for a visionary young man Fred Smith Fred Smith was born in 1944 in Marks, Mississippi, a tiny town of about 2,000 people, due east of the mighty Mississippi River. Fred's grandfather, Captain James Buchanan Smith, was a master of steamboats along that river and the Ohio River, moving people and cargo up and downstream. Fred's father, James Frederick Smith, who also went by Fred, realized that the rivers of water connecting people then would soon give way to rivers of asphalt and concrete. And so he began selling trucks in nearby Memphis for the John T. Fisher Motor Company, one of the very first Chrysler franchises. In 1925, Fred's father took a truck that his boss had given him, replaced its cargo area with seating for 12, and began ferrying men and material around. What began as a one-man motor coach company turned into a 25-car company by the second year. And by the end of the third year, he had 60 coaches. Fred's father sold the company to Greyhound in 1931, more than a dozen years before Fred was born. But before young Fred could dream up ways to continue the family tradition of transportation, he had some other challenges. He had a rare childhood bone disease causing arthritis of the hip, which forced him to use crutches and watch sports from the sidelines in his early years. Fred outgrew the disease by the age of 10 and became an excellent football player. He even learned how to fly airplanes as a 15-year-old. Overcoming so many obstacles without one of the most important figures in a boy's life. And when we come back, more on the life of Fred Smith, the company he founded, FedEx. It's a classic American story. It's an American dream story, too, an American dreamer story for sure. On this day in history in 1971, Fred Smith founded and started FedEx. More after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with our This Day in History segment, and it's the story of the founding of FedEx, and that happened back in 1971 on This Day in History. We learned a little bit about Fred Smith's background, his dad, the Yale thesis, and now we're about to dig into the critical part of the development of this great company, and my goodness, when it first started, as you're about to hear Nobody, almost nobody, except maybe one person, thought this would be, would ever be, a great American company. Let's pick up where we last left off. Fred outgrew the childhood bone disease causing arthritis of the hip by the age of 10, overcoming so many obstacles without one of the most important figures in a boy's life. Having grown up without a father, my, my, my father passed away when I was four. So I was heavily influenced by my uncles and by my coaches. And uh, they were the, the influences uh, that, that really, I, I, can, I can hear their voices to this day, you know, talking to me. And, and I, I still hear my uncles, all of them World War II veterans and they're part of the greatest generation. And, uh, and my, my coaches there telling me, well, you know, you need to do this, that, and the other thing. Those same men inspired Fred to make a choice that would define his life and character. I was coming out of high school. There wasn't much question about the fact I was going to do my military service. It was just a matter of uh, which branch. And uh, uh, so uh, the Marine Corps appealed to me. The uniforms looked great. Fred left Memphis in 1962 for Yale. He would train with the Marines during the summer and go to class during the year. Life seemed to be going according to plan. It was during his junior year at Yale that Fred came up with the original idea for FedEx in that term paper. But before Fred could grow that into something that would change the world, events halfway around the world sent Fred to a very different sort of classroom. He soon left Yale, left with a degree and left with a commission as an officer in the United States Marine Corps, shipping out for the first of his two tours in Vietnam. I joined uh, my unit in Chulai. I became a platoon leader and uh, served in uh, India Company and uh, Lima Company. I was then given command of uh, K Company 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. This was a very different war than World War II or Korea with no clear battle lines. On a Monday morning in May 1968, Fred and his K Company engaged a much larger North Vietnamese battalion. Moving across fire-swept ground to reach higher elevation, Fred started calling down artillery and airstrikes to within 50 meters of where he himself stood. With fire support sowing confusion among the enemy, Fred and his Marines attacked and routed the much larger North Vietnamese force. What stands out most to Fred isn't the action, it's his fellow Marine. To this day, Fred beams with pride when he remembers the men he served with in K Company. Uh, there is nothing in my life that I'm more proud of than commanding K Company 3-5. They were the finest group of 
young men in those days that uh, you could ever hope to, to have, uh, courageous beyond belief. Fred Smith returned to the States and was honorably discharged as a captain, having earned a silver star, a bronze star, and two purple hearts. But he had had enough of war. Later saying of that time, I got so sick of destruction and blowing things up that I came back determined to do something more constructive. It was then that he thought of his college term paper about a transportation network for the new digital age. It was dusty, but more relevant than ever. It was pretty clear then uh, with IBM, uh, you know, installing the, the big computers around that the world was going to change. And the paper was about how this was going to change a lot of things. And in particular, it was going to change the way things had to be distributed and moved to support those automated uh, devices. Just as his grandfather and father used the cutting-edge technology of their day, Fred envisioned a seamless network of airplanes and trucks. Other companies in the 1960s were also trying to speed up movement of high-value items, but they stuck to systems designed for passengers. Fred realized that unlike passengers during that era, packages didn't have to go directly from origin to destination. Airplanes could speed packages to and from a national clearinghouse. And trucks could make the final delivery. This way, two small towns that don't have frequent flights, or any at all, could still be connected with the speed of airplanes. Fred had seen how such a system might work. The Marine Corps' air-ground integration is a huge benefit and one of the big innovations that uh, Federal Express did, nobody had ever done before, was to have integrated air-ground operations. The pickup and delivery folks were uh, just like the pilots and the airplanes and, and everything was coordinated just as we had done in the Marine Corps and all of those lessons that I'd learned there uh, on, the, on the ground and in the air in Vietnam uh, played over and over in my mind as we were putting together the business plan uh, for FedEx. His father started his motor coach company with a truck. Fred started with a handful of airplanes. He had the idea that he would make deliveries for the Federal Reserve System by transporting, sorting, and rerouting checks, all with guaranteed delivery in 24 hours. Fred's calculations showed that he could save the American banking industry three million dollars a day. He even named his company Federal Express, hoping that it would resonate with the banks and conjure up images of nationwide commerce. Today you know this company as FedEx, serving customers like this. If a patient gets in a car accident and breaks their skull, we manufacture and produce the plates and screws that will actually screw into the bone and mend the fracture. So with these types of procedures, time is extremely valuable to the patient, to the surgeon, and everyone involved. So with our previous shipping carrier, it took us three days to ship the products from Freiburg, Germany, the, the manufacturing facility, here to the United States. That was in many times not fast enough. Exceptional service that FedEx provided for an urgent case uh, that was planned first thing on a Monday morning. The implant was shipped 
from Germany on Saturday morning by FedEx. It was imported into the United States and it was received by the striker representative at the airport on Sunday evening. Now this is a one day transit time on the weekend from Europe to the United States. But back when the company was starting, not one bank believed it could deliver. So Fred, like any Marine, adapted and overcame by making a slight course correction. He would deliver any company's time-sensitive material anywhere in the country with his 24-hour guarantee. It's not like we're carrying sand and gravel. You know, we're carrying chemotherapy drugs and important manuscripts and electronic parts and, and pieces for airplanes that are grounded. So when we pick it up and say we're going to have it there early the next morning, I mean, we have to deliver. There's nothing else to it. So this is guaranteed. If we don't get it there, I mean, we don't get, get paid. FedEx officially began operations in April of 1973. On their first night, they delivered 186 packages to 25 cities with 14 airplanes and 389 team members. Most outsiders expected this innovation to fail. As Fred would later say of that time, people thought we were bananas. We were too ignorant to know that we weren't supposed to be able to do certain things. Fred, though, believed. And this story just keeps getting better. These guys were bananas. And very few people believed in this project. But one, maybe a couple more. And just imagine, folks, 14 planes, 185 packages. How the heck do you get those numbers to work? And what kind of a visionary, what kind of a temperament, what kind of people keep going and make this work when we come back? More about this great American company, more on the story of FedEx and its founding, and it happened on this day in history in 1971. More of FedEx's story, Fred Smith's story, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of FedEx and Fred Smith. FedEx was founded on this day in history in 1971. And we heard Fred talk about how he lost his father and how uncles and coaches filled the breach. And men listening, be a surrogate father to boys in need. Because my goodness, what a difference you can make. And Fred Smith had said, quote, I can still hear their voices in my head. And it's clear without those men, there is no Fred Smith. He'll tell you that. We're telling you that. Let's pick up this remarkable story of this great American company. In his time in Vietnam, he developed a willingness to take great risks to accomplish great things. Most businessmen couldn't imagine calling down bombs and napalm to within a few yards of themselves and their buddies. But sometimes, 
That's just what the mission requires. Fred's different experiences, different mindset, gave him a different take on his new business struggles. The, the currency of exchange in FedEx was just money. You know, it wasn't people's arms and legs or, or, or lives. And so my perspective on it was perhaps a bit more, um, I was willing to take, take a chance because losing wasn't the worst thing in the world that could happen to you. I had seen that very clearly. But Fred's confidence and the brilliance of the model, in hindsight, weren't enough to create immediate success. Three months after FedEx's launch, delivery drivers were frequently digging into their own pockets for gas money. And back in Memphis, things were just as grim. Federal Express had already lost one-third of its startup money. Roger Frock, a FedEx co-founder, recalled the desperate measures that had to be taken. By mid-July, our funds were so meager that on Friday we were down to about $5,000 in the checking account, while we needed $24,000 for the jet fuel payment. When I arrived back in Memphis on Monday morning, much to my surprise, the bank balance stood at nearly $32,000. I asked Fred where the funds had come from, and he responded, I knew we needed money for Monday, so I took a plane to Las Vegas and won $27,000. I said, you mean you took our last $5,000? How could you do that? He shrugged his shoulders and said, what difference does it make? Without the funds for the fuel companies, we couldn't have flown anyway. As it turns out, time overseas had taught Fred more than the difference between reckless and calculated risk. It also gave him a chance to practice card games. Two years in Vietnam, we played a lot of poker and a lot of blackjack, and in those days, you only had one deck. So if you knew how to play, it was easier to win. But the winnings didn't last long, and by October, only three months later, Federal Express was on death's doorstep again. Nearly killed in the cradle by the Arab oil embargo, gas prices skyrocketed. Federal Express was teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. And if it fell, it would take with it not only the $40 million of venture capital, but Fred's and his family's life savings as well. By April of 1975, two years after its opening night, Federal Express had lost nearly $29 million. Though it was losing money, the company's customer base was growing and the underlying idea was as sound as ever. But Fred will be the first to admit that there's no such thing as a new idea. If you brought Julius Caesar back to Earth, he would understand the organization of, of FedEx because he basically invented it. Uh, we have our proconsul in Hong Kong, he had his in Palestine. Uh, we have our technical folks, our IT people, our aviation maintenance folks. He had his charioteers, his catapult operators, his engineers. And in July 1975, the company began showing a profit. And just nine years later, in 1984, Federal Express surpassed $1 billion in revenue. The first company to ever do so in its own right. Since then, FedEx has grown so much that it is woven into pop culture without the company even trying. Like in the Tom Hanks movie, Castaway. 
I was marooned on an island for five years with this package. And I swore that I would deliver it to you because I work for FedEx. Hey, but by the way, what's in the package? Nothing really. Just a satellite phone, GPS locator, fishing rod, water purifier, and some seeds. Just silly stuff. Thank you again. You keep up the good work. When asked what was the key to his success, Fred is well known to give the credit to his employees. After all, they are on the front lines of the business. And of course, he learned the importance of that once again in the Marines. It was the recognition that in a high performance service organization, it's not the people at the top that are the most important folks in the equation, it's the customer service people. There are many units under the FedEx umbrella and each has a branding color scheme. Purple and orange for original express, purple and green for ground, purple and crimson for freight, and so on, all united by purple. Every FedEx employee knows what Fred Smith calls the purple promise, the simple pledge that I will make every FedEx experience outstanding. Employees like Trung Do. The day I was rescued and sent to a refugee camp, that's the day I consider myself reborn. But the day I got a job with FedEx, that's the day I consider I have a new life, the best life I ever dreamed of. Trung served alongside Americans during the Vietnam War and was sent to a hard labor camp by vengeful communists after America left. He eventually escaped and made his way to the States, where he dedicated his life to working on the same planes at the same company as the man who had sponsored him to come to America. Trung enrolled in Aviation Mechanics School in Memphis, a stone's throw away from FedEx DC-10 airplanes coming and going. And the whole time I was in school, sitting in the back of the school, looking across runway 27 with FedEx over there, I was dreaming. I was praying to God. I want to be there someday. He soon passed the mechanic test, applied to work at FedEx, and waited by the phone. When FedEx called me and said that uh, FedEx was going to give me a job as a senior mechanic with uh, this kind of pay, blah, 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 blah. He said, oh, I, mean, I was blind. I mean, I mean, I was deaf. My ears ringing. I couldn't hear a thing. All I hear is FedEx hiring me. Three decades later, Trung Do is still working for FedEx in Fort Myers, Florida, keeping their 550 mile per hour delivery trucks in top condition. Still working for you. FedEx is still working for you for when your package absolutely, positively, has to be there overnight. And when it does, think of Fred Smith, who made it all possible. And thank your delivery driver, the way Fred would walk. And what a story, the story of FedEx, which of course, it's the story of Fred Smith in the end, and the many, many, many hundreds of thousands of people who helped that dream become a reality. He employs that many people now, folks. Remarkable worldwide company. There are two simple rules to being a good combat leader, Fred Smith said. 
to be the first to charge up the hill and the last in line to eat. And though I am chairman of the company, he said, I can't get myself to cut in line in the cafeteria. And it's always a reminder, a voice inside him, that a good officer lets his troops eat first. And there you have it, a great American story, a great American company. On this day in history, FedEx was born. This is Our American Stories. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. continue here on Our American Stories, and now it's time for another installment of The McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone you don't know, but whose life and whose voice, well, you're sure to be captivated by. And today, Bob, who's a Marine, shares a story about his dad, who also happens to be a Marine. After getting my dad settled in the living room for a short visit after my parents' divorce, my father and I sat on the couch to have a beer and watch some TV. Sitting next to him, I noticed how much he'd aged. His six-foot-two-inch frame, combined with his broad shoulders and chest, gave no hint that he'd lost any of his power. But he was heavier and softer. His hair was graying, and the creases in his face were deeper. As he leaned forward on the couch to reach his beer and cigarettes, I had to admire how formidable he still looked. He was aware of what was happening to him, but he didn't care. He had no interest in prolonging a life that he felt had exhausted its excitement and purpose. He'd become bored. There were no more wars to fight, no more women to love or children to raise. Left without these, his passion for life was diminished and his interest in life had become lackluster so he saw no sense in prolonging it. Life had become a still photo rather than a motion picture. His coming to a visit instilled some real anxiety in me. I knew what to expect from him. As the chain of command drove the hierarchy in his house growing up, it would be like that here. He'd want it that way. In his house or under his command, he was like a giant redwood tree and very little grows underneath those trees. They are so big they gather all the sunlight for themselves. He was used to giving orders and having them followed. But now I was 26 years old. I was a former Marine and a senior in college, and I'd been living on my own and taking care of myself for the last eight years. Coming to visit my home would be my dad's turn. It would be his turn to move over. My father would tell us boys that the changing of command from father to son would be inevitable. Let me tell you something, kid, that a day will come when you're not going to want to do what I tell you to do, and on that day, you're going to leave, because if I lose control to one of you, I won't be able to control the other two. That day came when I was 18. 
I blocked the doorway that he was trying to pass through on his way to the kitchen. I stood in the doorway and my chest really expanded. I thrust it in front of him. We stood face to face looking into each other's eyes. He said, so you think you're ready to take on your own man now? Is that what this little display of yours is all about? Well, let me tell you something. At my age, I don't care anymore about winning or losing. What you need to know is I'm not going to go easy. I'm going to get a piece of you even if I have to bite it off. You're not going to get out of this pain-free. You need to think about whether it's worth it to you. Staring into his unblinking metallic blue-gray eyes, I thought over what he said and decided, yeah, it's time to step aside and let my father go on his way. My father knew that the key weapon in, in intimidation is that just a pinprick of doubt will burst the overinflated balloon of self-confidence. Living in San Francisco in 1974 was very different than the life on the farm my father led as a young man. Life in the city was about freedom and audacity, not regulation and authority. There was nothing that was clean or sterile. Order was not part of the day's routine. And traditional roles? <laughs> well, traditional roles and values were best left back in your hometown. My roommate returned from work after 2 a.m. the night my father arrived and joined us at the kitchen table for a drink. Sitting around the kitchen table, my father reached into his pocket and produced an empty key ring. Tossing it onto the table, he said, Look at that. That's something you don't see every day. An empty key ring. No more house. No more office. No more car. I left with only my suitcase. Billy, yeah, of course. I'd already given away all my clothes. There was very little to pack. At least she didn't throw them out in the street or the driveway like she used to do. Well, she can have it all including the car payments, house payments, electrical bill, and all that crap that goes with those things. I have my suitcase, and that's all I want. I went overseas with far less. The night after my dad's arrival, I invited my girlfriend and a couple friends over to meet him. Sitting around the kitchen table having a few drinks was an easy way to introduce my father. Sharing drinks at a bar, around a table, talking. That was his element. After everyone imbibed a few pops, he answered questions about his life, and he started to tell a story about his time in the military police. I looked over at my girlfriend sitting next to me, and I started to run my fingers through her hair. I commented to her about how beautiful she looked. She didn't respond or pay any attention to me, as she seemed fascinated by the story. a phone call from a hotel to the Kingston police asking for help. The desk clerk at a local hotel reported that a woman was with a Marine upstairs in her room, screaming, you murderer, oh my God, you murderer. The door was locked and bolted on the inside, and the hotel clerk was afraid of what he might find inside. He wanted the MPs and the police to come immediately. He continued, in the hall we could hear sobbing inside the room, but there were no other noises. We pounded on the door until she screamed, You murderer, you animal, help, help! We whipped our weapons right out, unlocked the safety, 
pulled the hammer back and I heard my body back and shouldered it into the door to get it open. And the three of us exploded into the room with our guns searching for a target. With our weapons locked and loaded, we quickly surveyed the room, but found no one other than the sobbing woman sitting alone on the edge of the bed. She raised her arms. He's in there, she said, as she pointed to the bathroom. He's in there. I ordered the other two MPs to cover the door as I burst into the bathroom. Looking down the barrel of my forty-five, I only saw a drunken Marine sitting on the floor in my gun sights. Sitting between the toilet and the wall with his arm around the back of the water pipe, he looked up at me and with a smile on his face he waved his arm and said, Hiya, Sarge. We all had our guns pointed at him until we realized he was unarmed and certainly too drunk to stand up. I demanded to know, what the hell's going on here, Marine? With his free arm, the Marine pointed inside the toilet bowl and said, Look! We all leaned forward to peer into the bowl, and to our amazement, there was a small orange duckling the couple had won at a local fair, swimming around the inside of the bowl. The drunk Marine said, What's this, Sarge? With the arm around the water pipe, he reached up and pulled the cord on the water closet. The sound of the flush unleashed a torrent of screams from the woman in the room as the water was sucked down the drain. The duck, caught in the whirlpool, started swimming faster and faster against the suction of the vortex in an effort to stay afloat. The faster the water drained, the faster that duck paddled. In spite of his struggle to paddle fast enough, though, to keep him from being flushed down the drain, he was eventually sucked down the drain and disappeared. The bathroom became quiet as the bowl started to refill. Mystified, all eyes remained transfixed on the now empty and quiet bowl which had just swallowed the duckling. What the hell are you doing here? He said he demanded. Marine just sat there next to the toilet laughing so hard he could care less about the prospect that he was going to be arrested and hauled off to the brig. The woman in the other room, she just continued sobbing about her boyfriend's cruelty until the water refilled the bowl. When the water level was restored and the toilet bowl quieted down, out of the depth of the drain, the duck suddenly popped up and continued to paddle around in this porcelain pond as if nothing had happened. As the crowd sat around the table laughing, a friend approached and asked, Hey, is it cool to smoke some pot? I mean, I know your dad was a Marine and military policeman and all that, but is he cool? The reality of cultural and generational clash became real clear to me now. If I could have imagined at that moment that his few days visit would turn into his becoming my roommate for the next 18 months, I would have thrown all his clothes out on the driveway and bought him a one-way bus ticket back to my mom. And you've been listening to Bob McClellan, and what a storyteller. And you can just see all this in your head, and I'm sure, I'm sure we all see different things. But my goodness, that little duckling going down, and then the stillness and the silence, and then it emerging, and this culture clash, the 1970s, San Francisco. Yeah, it's probably everything you think when I say that. And here comes this old school Marine to crash with his son. And we look forward to more from Bob McClellan. It's the McClellan Files. And by the way, 
There are storytellers like this in every community. I bumped into Bob. I was supposed to meet him and talk about this or that. I'd heard he was a good writer. I stayed with him for five hours, and I said, Bob, you need to be a regular contributor on our American stories. And so if you know somebody like Bob, if you are Bob, have stories that are compelling and beautiful and frightening, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. We're interested in hearing them because you are the hour in our American stories. We love hearing the stories from ordinary Americans. Again, the McClellan Files, Bob McClellan's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between, and we tell your stories, too, and send them to ouramericannetwork.org, because some of our very best have been from the people who listen to this show, from you. And this next story, well, it's the story of Virginia Hall, and she's a World War II spy who overcame both physical and societal ills during a time when the world seemed to be tearing itself apart, literally. Now for her story, as told by Judy Pearson. Virginia Hall was once asked why she never told her story. She replied that no one had ever asked her. In 2003, I began asking... My quest took me to her niece in Baltimore, newly declassified intelligence records in the National Archives, then to London, Paris, and across the French countryside. I conducted countless interviews in English and in French, and read dozens of personal accounts. What ultimately unfolded was the story of an incredible woman. She was intelligent, brave and outspoken. She was loyal, daring, and stubborn. But as a young woman, all of Virginia Hall's energies were directed at becoming a foreign service officer. At high school graduation, while her chums were thinking of marriage and families, Virginia announced that the only way for a woman to get ahead in the world was with an education. After several undistinguished years at Radcliffe and Barnard, she went to the Sorbonne in Paris and then the Consulaire Academy in Vienna, from which she graduated in 1929. Back in the States, now fluent in French and German, she applied to take the Foreign Service exam. The exam consisted of three parts. The first was written, covering all manner of topics, including world history, geography, and sociology. The second tested the applicant's knowledge of a foreign language. Virginia opted for French. And the third part of the exam, far more subjective, gave the examiner the power to judge what kind of officer the applicant would make. Virginia failed the exam, took it again, and was failed again. It was 1930. 
women had only had the right to vote for 10 years, and the number of female foreign service officers could be counted on one hand. Gender discrimination was hard at work. She told a family friend that if she couldn't get into the foreign service through the front door, she'd try going in through the back door and landed a job as clerk at the American Embassy in Poland. She once again applied for the exam, but before she completed it, she was transferred to the American consulate in Smyrna, now Izmir, Turkey. Here, her life changed forever. On a December Saturday afternoon hunting expedition with some friends in 1933, Virginia's gun accidentally discharged into her left foot. Despite doctors' best efforts, gangrene set in, and to save her life, they removed her leg from the knee down. What might have been considered by some as a life-ending event, Virginia saw as merely a delay in plans. When she was well enough to travel, she returned home to Baltimore to recuperate and be fitted with a seven-pound wooden prosthesis. And a year later, she was back at work, this time at the American consulate in Venice, from which she requested to take the foreign service exam yet again. But this time, rather than test questions, a letter arrived, informing her that, according to an obscure statute, amputees were not accepted in the foreign service. The letter concluded by politely asking Virginia not to apply again. She simply wouldn't fit in. As Hitler began blazing across Europe, a discouraged Virginia Hall left her consular job and went to France. Here, her leg was not an issue. She was gratefully accepted as a volunteer ambulance driver for the French army. Nor was her leg an issue several months later when in London, she was approached by a special operations executive employee, the SOE. This undercover paramilitary organization had been created by Winston Churchill to, as he said, set Europe ablaze. The current war was unlike any other. The Allies needed extraordinary warfare in the form of espionage and sabotage. Escaping French military had told the British that there were many in France who would be willing to rise up against the Nazis, given enough organization and arms. Leaders who could be infiltrated into the country were needed, and Virginia fit the bill. The Brits didn't give a hoot about her gender. In fact, it was believed that women would make the best spies. This doesn't surprise those of us who are women, but it was a revelation to the men. Furthermore, men were being whisked to Germany as laborers. A man on the streets in France needed reasons for being there, but a woman didn't and could travel about more easily. Nor did the Brits care how many limbs Virginia had lost. Her disability was unknown to most. She walked only with a slight limp. At the SOE's training camps, Virginia learned things her Baltimore contemporaries would never have imagined. I had the good fortune to interview one of the instructors while I was in London. Leslie Fernandez taught SOE recruits, including Virginia, physical combat, in other words, how to kill. And Virginia wasn't shown any favoritism because of her missing leg. She wouldn't have accepted it anyway. The only training she didn't receive was in parachuting, the primary means by which agents were infiltrated. It was 1941 and America had not yet entered the war, 
Virginia would be free to enter France as a non-combatant, which she did using journalism as her cover. And when we come back, we'll continue this story, Virginia Hall's story, The Spy with a Wooden Leg. And by the way, you're not hearing stories like this many other places, folks. And to hear about her grit, her perseverance, and rising above the odds, well, we love stories like this. Virginia Hall's story, again, The Spy with the Wooden Leg, continues after these messages. Return to Our American Stories, and when we left off, Virginia Hall was sneaking into France back in 1941. Not a time actually to be going into France. And she was posing as a journalist to act as a British intelligence operative. Let's return to the author, Judy Pearson. I spent hours digging through the British National Archives at Kew and the Imperial War Museum Archives in London, both of which were rich in material. I heard the oral histories of those recruited agents who had daringly dropped into occupied France, where Virginia and others awaited them. When I arrived in France after spending several days digging through the archives in Paris, I rented a car and took off across the country to visit firsthand all of the cities Virginia had worked from. She was ultimately sent to Lyon, the center of resistance activities in unoccupied France. So I went to Lyon as well. There, under her journalism cover, while ostensibly collecting information for newspaper articles, Virginia was also collecting information about Nazi activities. Her flat, innocently appearing as that of a hardworking writer, was the clearinghouse for every British agent who was sent to central France in 1941. Through Virginia, they were able to connect with fellow agents and contact others to help them. They collected counterfeited money and wireless radios needed to perform their work. When they were captured and imprisoned, Virginia worked on their escapes. She organized her own group of resistance members in Lyon and had contacts in Marseille and at the Spanish border, two places from which people could disappear should the need arise. She and her group saved innumerable lives of both downed Allied pilots needing passage out of France and agents who were being hunted by the Gestapo. But it wasn't long before Virginia herself became hunted. Klaus Barbie, later known as the Butcher of Lyon, spread the word that a lady with a limp, an Englishman or a Canadian, was wanted in connection with espionage activities. His posters announced that Virginia was the most dangerous of all Allied spies and that everyone should help him find and destroy her. 
Virginia's exodus across the Pyrenees Mountains, the rugged chain that separates France from Spain, was in November 1942. The cold and rigorous march would have been exhausting for anyone, but dragging a seven-pound wooden leg through the snow made it all the more difficult for Virginia. She hadn't dared tell the guide about her leg. He was already grumbling because she was a woman. At one point, she was able to radio London to tell them she was on her way out of France. She mentioned that Cuthbert, her clever nickname for her leg, had become quite tiresome. The recipient of the message, ignorant of the leg's name, wired back that if Cuthbert had become tiresome, she should have him eliminated. At the end of the grueling 30-mile journey, Virginia was arrested in Spain for not having papers. She was imprisoned for six weeks, released only after her former cellmate, a Barcelona prostitute, was able to get word to the British consulate that she was being held. By the time Virginia had returned to England in early 1943, a new intelligence organization had been born. Its name was the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. It was patterned after the SOE, with one exception. It was purebred American, led by a hero from World War I named General Wild Bill Donovan. Virginia was desperate to get back into the fight, and transferring to the OSS made sense since she was an American. But there was a concern. She was now a hunted woman whose sketched picture had been spread throughout France. A return could only be facilitated if she were disguised. That of an old peasant woman fit the bill. On her second trip to occupied France, Virginia's intelligence and ingenuity served her and saved her many times. This time, she acted as her own radio operator, setting up numerous resistance cells. Three months after returning to France, the greatest armada the world had ever seen crossed the channel for the D-Day landings. When the signal was given, her resistance cell went into action, cutting off Nazi supply lines and disrupting their communications, all in a successful effort to aid the Allied invasion of Europe. By the fall of 1944, all of France was liberated. During Virginia's second stint in the country, she had had the pleasure of leading 1,500 resistance volunteers who killed 150 Nazis and captured 500 more. Her team had sabotaged numerous transportation and communication links. Virginia's leadership and sang-froid was not only admired, it became legendary. They called her La Madonna, the Madonna. Virginia was awarded the Member of the British Empire, the French Croix de Guerre avec Palme, and the American Distinguished Service Cross, the only woman in World War II to receive that American distinction. But Virginia wasn't interested in accolades. She wanted to continue her work in espionage. Although the OSS had been dissolved, Virginia was one of the first women on board the new intelligence agency, known as the Central Intelligence Group. It became the Central Intelligence Agency in December 1947. But the new world of intelligence was very different from the one Virginia had previously been a part of. 
Communism was the enemy now. And as one observer put it, Joseph Stalin made Hitler look like a Boy Scout. Virginia wanted desperately to become an operative again, willing to undergo whatever training was necessary. But at the advanced age of 41, she was looked upon as old school. Her skills were outdated, and her aggressiveness was offensive to the younger men who were her superiors. Her experience was dismissed as not pertinent. After all she'd been through and all the sacrifices she gladly made, once again, Virginia Hall didn't fit in. Virginia had married Paul Goyot in 1950, a French-American she had met toward the end of the war. She accepted mandatory retirement from the CIA in 1966, and she and Paul moved to a farm in Barnstown, Maryland. They raised poodles, gardened, and grew old together. Virginia died in 1982, and Goyot followed five years later. She was never bitter about the fact that her career hadn't begun or ended as she would have liked. Rather, Virginia chose to remember the magnificent days in the middle, the days when her clever mind and brave heart helped defeat fascists bent on world domination. And a special thanks to Judy Pearson, And by the way, her book about Virginia Hall was called Wolves at the Door, The True Story of America's Greatest Female Spy. And I had never heard that story, and I'm a big World War II buff, and it doesn't get better than a story like that. I mean, the woman accidentally shoots her foot off, and for most people, that's it. She gets turned down once, twice, but is determined to be a member of the Foreign Service, eases her way into France when most people will be running from France as the Nazis come and occupy the country. And ultimately, Klaus Barbie, the butcher, has her as the most wanted person in the Nazi regime when it comes to spies. Certainly, what an impact she had, her life, what an example. And by the way, to be the only woman to win the American Distinguished Service Cross I don't know why more of us don't know this story, Um, but that's what we do here on Our American Stories. And my goodness, what Judy Pearson did here, the author, I mean, she literally walked in Virginia Hall's shoes, traveled all over Europe just just to honor her story. And these are the kind of writers and researchers we love to put on the show. Virginia Hall's story, The Spy with the Wooden Leg, here on Our American Stories. This is Robbie, and I'm one of the new producers of Our American Stories. In my short time here, I've been able to help people tell some amazing stories, and you can find them on ouramericannetwork.org. But now it's your turn. I'd like to help you tell your story to our listeners. Just record it and send it over to yourstory at oanetwork.org. 
That's your story at oanetwork.org. Can't wait to hear it. This is Our American Stories, and this one is unusual. I want to read a quote from John Gardner, the former Secretary of Health under Lyndon Johnson, the President of the United States in the 60s. Quote, the society which scorns excellence in plumbing as a humble activity and tolerates shoddiness in philosophy because it is an exalted activity will have neither good plumbing nor good philosophy. Neither its pipes nor its theories will hold water. This is the unspoken story about the small, unmentionable seat in the corner of our lives, or said another way, this is how we have been shaped by our grossest national product. Here's Greg Hengler. Elvis died in one, and Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, was born on one. Although we use them every day, most of us know very little about toilets. Here's author of The Porcelain God, Julie Horin, and public health historian, David Rossner. Not only did civilization start with the onset of writing, but it also started with man actually coming and getting uh, a hold of his sanitation needs. Creation of sanitary systems were in some sense the basis for creating great cities and great communities. The earliest written reference to the disposal of human waste is more than 3,600 years old and is found in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 23, 12-13, God instructs the Hebrews to do their exodus in a holy fashion. You are to have a place outside the camp. Go there to relieve yourself. You are to have a digging tool in your equipment. When you relieve yourself, dig a hole with it and cover up your excrement. For hundreds of thousands of years before this was written, human beings simply squatted when they had the urge to go. As the world became more populated, disposal of human waste became a bit more difficult. In ancient Egypt, cities began to spring up from the desert. By 2500 BC, the Egyptians solved the waste disposal dilemma, constructing bathrooms with latrines which were flushed by hand with buckets of water. The latrines emptied into earthenware pipes, many of which are still functional today. The Roman Empire also had a public sewage system. Here's David Rossner and sociologist Stephen Seufer. Rome was not built in a day, but it was built around its water supply system and its ability to get rid of its material without polluting itself or polluting people downstream. Their development of the bathroom was incredible. Middle-class Romans in their homes were able to hook up a private bathroom to the public sewer system that Rome had developed and actually have the waste carried away to the main sewage disposal plant. Like Rome's private lavatories, their public latrines, which were seat holes carved into stone benches, were erected over channels of water that came from distant mountain streams that flowed through aqueducts for over 200 miles. Here's poet Eva Upglin visiting some Roman restroom ruins. 
This was a communal privy. You'd have sat here, the seat has disappeared, and your waste would have dropped into this drainage channel here. The water flushed the waste away, nobody had to touch it, and of course, as it dropped into the water, that minimised smell. Now then, this second water channel running in front of us here was what you would have used to wash yourself afterwards. You would have had a stick with a piece of sponge on the end, dip that in the water, wash behind yourself, thus giving rise to the phrase, the importance of not getting hold of the wrong end of the stick. But the privy, which takes its name from the Latin word for privacy, couldn't save the Roman Empire. And when it finally fell, the water-fed toilet fell into the lavatorial dark ages, clogging up toilet innovation for more than a thousand years. During these medieval times, castle dwellers would strengthen their defenses by dumping waste into their moats. The raw sewage discouraged invaders from crossing. Here's physicist Charles Panetti, author of Extraordinary Origins. The only thing that you had indoors for the next, really, a thousand years was the chamber pot, which was really something of a horror story. It was a convenience in one way when you needed to go in the middle of the night. At nighttime was the time when people would dump the contents of this uh, chamber pot outside their windows into the streets below. And the idea that a man walks on the left side of the female dates back to this time, it was polite for him to get hit by the contents of the chamber pot and to spare the woman. In the 16th century, the flushing toilet made its debut in England. The first nearly modern toilet was made for Queen Elizabeth I in 1596. It was made by her godson, Sir John Harrington. He made it to get back in her good graces because she had banished him from court for using foul language. He came up with a really clever device. It had a tank at the top, it had a valve you opened to let water down, and there was a trap door that you could close after you used the toilet. Harrington's primitive toilet had a critical design flaw. One, the flushing sound was ear-piercing. And, number two, the pipe beneath the bowl was vertical. Waste went straight down, and sewer smells came straight up. The queen complained that fumes came up from the cesspool, uh, but it was a problem that her godson was never able to solve. You realize how bad the situation was if you look at the Palace of Versailles. A fortune was spent in constructing it. It had these wonderful hall of mirrors, elaborate chandeliers, and you might have a thousand people being entertained, eating and drinking copiously, but where did they go to the bathroom? There was not a single bathroom in the entire elaborate palace. And the answer is they went in the stairwells. And one of the reasons the French applied so much perfume during that period was to overcome all of the indoor odors from people relieving themselves. Outside Versailles, People were relieving themselves in indoor cesspits. They were simply benches or seats perched over holes lined with wood, stone, or brick. Their main drawback, aside from the smell, was that you had to pay nightmen called scavengers wielding a bucket and a shovel to clean them out and carry them on a horse-drawn cart to local streams and rivers. This is why it pays to be upstream. And if you ventured into town and nature called, a man called a Johnny offered his customers privacy. He wore a large black cape and carried a chamber pot. The customer would pay a half a cent and squat over the pot while Johnny covered him with the large cape. 
Fast forward to 18th century America, colonists modified the cesspit by taking it outside and constructing a small wooden shack over it. The outhouse was born. They would place the uh, outhouses far enough from the house where there would not be problems with smell or with seeping into the water supply of the house. In 1775, while America was embroiled in the Revolutionary War, back in the mother country, another revolution was taking place. British watchmaker Alexander Cumming filed for the first ever patent on a toilet with a twist. Literally, the pipe beneath Cummings' toilet bowl curved backward in a distinctive S-shaped bend. This allowed water to pool in the U-shaped part of the pipe, cutting off the explosive and stinky sewer gas from below. It actually is the modern toilet because we still have that water separating us from the cesspool today. Long before President Lyndon Johnson held meetings with Robert Kennedy while sitting on the John, the toilet played a leading role in governing our nation. America's first owner of this modern toilet was Thomas Jefferson, who had three of these elite oddities installed at Monticello. By the dawn of the 19th century, one important factor was still missing. Without working sewers, waste was just too big a load for the cesspits of the city and seep deep into the ground. And when we come back, more on the story, the history of the toilet with Greg Hengler, here on Our American Stories. stories and that was Jeff Daniels in the infamous toilet scene from 1994's Dumb and Dumber. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the unspoken story of the toilet. By the dawn of the 19th century, one important factor was still missing. Without working sewers, waste was just too big a load for the cesspits of the city and seeped deep into the ground. Here's David Rossner and scientist Adam Hart Davis. If you have a privy and it's uh, not too far away from your pump, you're going to have a real problem. You may literally be drinking the excrement that you're dumping the day before. Absolutely disgusting. And when they had drains, the drains simply went out into the streets, so all the streets were running with sewage. Toilet technology could only go so far until engineers could construct water delivery systems like the Roman aqueducts, able to service entire cities. In 1842, contending with the sudden rise of population due to an influx of immigrants, New York City paved the way. The system's designers harnessed a fundamental law of nature, that water always flows downhill. That water in your city follows the same principle. Water is pumped to the top of giant towers that are linked to pipes beneath the streets. 
Since the tower is higher than the water's final destination, gravity maintains pressure and forces the water through the pipes to your tap and toilet. After water is used, gravity is rendered once again and carries it away through sewer pipes angled downhill. During the 19th century, more and more cities followed New York's example. At the turn of the 20th century, plumbing was an exploding business in America, much like web search engines are today. And by the 1930s, America's entire urban population had access to running water. In 1854, a 10-year-old boy, John Michael Kohler, was brought to America from Austria by his father. This boy would become the Steve Jobs of toilet technology. With the purchase of a majority interest in Union Iron and Steel Foundry in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, 19 years later, he founded Kohler Company and successfully traversed the burgeoning sanitation market. The father of six developed his company into one of the few family-owned businesses still in existence dating from the turn of the century. About three-quarters of feces is water, and 10% is undigested food, but the remaining 15% is all bacteria, billions of them. And it's these bacteria that give feces its distinctive smell. Most of the bacteria are harmless and spend their lives processing the food inside our intestines, but some are lethal. Feces contain all the fiber that we can't digest that comes in the breakfast cereal and in fresh fruits and vegetables and so on. They contain the remains of dead blood cells, which is why it's brown, because that's what the remains are. It's stuff called bilirubin, which comes from broken down blood cells, and it contains enormous quantities of bacteria. And if you ingest those bacteria, if you eat them, then you're going to get very ill. Historically, the two great diseases that are associated with human waste are, of course, cholera. People can be perfectly healthy in the morning and be dead, literally dead in the evening. And uh, typhoid, another horrendous disease that is terrifying in its various aspects in that it creates terrible welts and rashes and also terrible fevers and sickness among anyone who comes into contact with it. Between 1831 to 1832, 50,000 Brits died from cholera. In Paris, cholera killed 18,000 in a single summer. The U.S. was next. Cholera had been moving east from Asia into Europe. In 1832, it had reached Paris and it had reached London, and it was very, very serious disease. We never expected to hit here. And then 1832, it hit Boston, it hit Philadelphia. More than 150,000 Americans died during the two cholera pandemics between 1832 and 1849. With the help of the new toilet, the westernized world was drowning in its own excrement. The smell, germs, and death finally led politicians to an effective solution. High-capacity sewers that carried the waste far away from town. They're sort of monuments to excrement, if you like. And uh, I've been down the sewers, and it's absolutely amazing how well they were built. The stuff running through them is not fun, but the sewers themselves are utterly brilliant. As the astronauts were to be the heroes of the 20th century, in the 19th century, toilet inventors were the giants that walked among men. The key innovation was a water siphoning system to force waste through the base of the bowl with unparalleled efficiency. 
What worked then still works now. Once the toilet bowl's flush handle is pulled, a valve inside the holding tank called the flapper opens up and water drains quickly into the bowl through a series of angled holes under the rim. The man who is often credited with inventing this flushing wonder probably had little to do with it. Thomas Crapper. Yes, he really existed. What he did patent is the pull chain that worked in conjunction with a valveless cistern, thus decreasing noise and preserving water. Due to his toilet innovations, the Victorian-era plumbing magnate earned himself a place in toilet history, if only by selling lots of them. During World War I, when American soldiers were stationed over in Britain, they would come across a lot of these toilets, and they started the euphemism of, I'm going to the crapper, and they based it on what they saw on the toilets, which said Thomas Crapper and company. And the John is derived from the toilets installed at Harvard University in 1735, which were emblazoned with the manufacturer's name, Reverend Edward Johns. While Crapper and Johns were making a name for themselves, two enterprising brothers were busy inventing the toilet's most essential accessory. Although the Chinese invented paper in the second century, it took them more than 1,200 years to get around to using it in the bathroom. They finally did in 1391 AD, but it was strictly for the use of emperors. Where did that leave commoners? People generally used their hands, and, in, and currently in many uh, countries around the world where paper is a premium, people continue to use their left hand. That is why when you travel to uh, parts of the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and Asia, you won't find any left-handed people. Everyone there is right-handed because the left hand is considered unclean. In medieval Europe, commoners used hay, grass, and plant leaves to clean themselves. In early America, Millions used corn cobs. The cobs were softened first by prolonged soaking in water. The corn cobs were generally given to the pigs to eat, and then when the pigs were finished with them and there was just the cob left, they would take those and use them to wipe themselves. So there was very little waste. When mass-published newspapers and catalogs became commonplace in the 19th century, Americans finally said goodbye to corn cobs and hello to Sears Roebuck. People would take the catalog, hang it in their outhouses, and they would read from it while they were doing their business. And at the finish of the business, they would tear off a piece and use it to wipe themselves. Things changed in the 20s. Unfortunately, Sears started using glossy print paper. The absorbing benefits of the catalog kind of lost it. So you didn't see so many people using the Sears catalog as toilet paper from then on. By that time, however, consumers had another option, real toilet paper. Here's Ken Fishberg, author of Toilet Paper Encyclopedia, and Charles Panetti. There was a man named Joseph Gaetti. He was a New Yorker, and he had a paper business in New Jersey. He was the first person who actually took paper, cut it into sheets, into small sheets, and sold it through drugstores as therapeutic paper. The people who bought them thought the paper was too nice and ended up using it as stationery, writing on it, and still using their catalog. In 1879, entrepreneurs Irvin and brother Clarence Scott began selling rolled toilet paper. It was made from tissue paper bought from other manufacturers, which they cut up, rolled, and repackaged. 
Although there have been some improvements over the years, today's toilet tissue is made basically the same way. In the 1940s, Scott's competitor, Northern Paper Mills of Green Bay, Wisconsin, began using chemicals to completely dissolve wood fibers and refer to their toilet paper as splinter-free. Today, nearly 2.4 billion people around the world don't have toilets. Nearly 150,000 people die every year from cholera. That's more than AIDS. In 2007, the prestigious British Medical Journal's 11,000 medical experts and readers, mostly doctors, voted modern sanitation as the number one medical advance since 1840. Not antibiotics, not vaccines, but toilets and clean water. The average human life expectancy increased nearly 35 years over the span of the 20th century. Roughly 30 of those 35 years are attributable to improvements in sanitation. Unless you count NASA's space toilets, the post-war era brought mostly incremental shifts in shapes and colors and shag carpet seat covers. While Harrington's godmother Elizabeth I might be baffled by a 21st century porcelain throne, Queen Victoria would easily recognize the seat upon which her great-great-granddaughter, Elizabeth II, does her sovereign business. Harry, are you in there? In this modern Game of Thrones... Get right out! We're all privileged members of the same royal family. I hope you're not using the toilet, it's broken! I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and what a story. And by the way, we learned about this problem in cities, too, when we were discussing the evolution of the automobile. Horse poop all over the streets of New York, Philadelphia, Boston. You'll learn this only here on Our American Stories.